Welcome to Inside the Coaching Mind, conversations on leadership, coaching, and team building, presented by Human X Ventures. Your host, Terry Pettit, led the University of Nebraska volleyball team from 1977 to 1999 and coached the Cornhuskers to their first national championship in 1995. Today, Coach Pettit mentors coaches, authors books, and presents to corporations and businesses on leadership and team building. Now, without further ado, here's your host, Coach Terry Pettit. I'm Terry Pettit, the host of Inside the Coaching Mind. First, I'd like to thank our sponsor, HumanX Ventures, which helps athletic teams and organizations realize their potential through building excellence with talent, culture, and teamwork. HumanX uses science-based research selection tools to help coaches and student athletes at the high school club, collegiate, and Olympic level build chemistry by design. Thank you to HumanX. We have a special guest today, um, the head softball coach at the University of Nebraska, Rhonda Ravel, who's in the process of her 31st season, um, really her 40th season if you count uh, her uh, time as a player at the University of Nebraska. Uh, Rhonda has won uh, eight conference championships, has led three teams to the College World Series. She's in a couple Hall of Fames. And those aren't the most important things about her. I think you'll discover those things in this conversation. Rhonda Ravel, um, we are really good friends. We um, officed together on the second floor of the Coliseum a building that no one wanted at the time other than us. Uh, and between us was Dr. Barbara Hibner, who um, mentored both of us and who certainly was an, an advocate for both of us. You and I had the opportunity to talk about uh, sport. I'm a longtime fan of you and your program, had the opportunity to to watch games and watched you you and your team in the first College World Series in 1982 in Omaha, and it was at a a recreational complex, as I recall. Uh, the other thing I recall is the Union Pacific Railroad had a, had a trestle uh, uh, near it. But um, it has to be a, a really special feeling to be able to to uh, coach at your alma mater. Um, it's it's something that I certainly didn't have the the opportunity to do, but. Uh, it's it's wonderful to be able to do that. It's incredible. And I've always said from day one, I feel like I'm living a dream. I think along with that dream, I think as an alum and every alum that I've talked to that's coaching at their alma mater, whether it's at Nebraska or another school, you, you feel a tremendous amount of responsibility. Uh, I think you do as a professional anyway. And no matter how you're wired, you're going to feel that need to achieve excellence. But I think when it's your alma mater and you have alumni, you have former teammates, you have former parents in your program. It's just, it just feels different. It hits you differently. And I think that, that you have to really work to balance out that feeling. And sometimes I've been better at balancing it than I have at other times. Yeah. Yeah. And you get a letter jacket. You get to wear a letter jacket too. That's you know, right. one of my best things that's happened to me, um, the Letterman's Club gave me a Letterman jacket about 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I just felt different. I, I felt wonderful. Um, I had lost my letter sweater from college years ago. And, uh, and, and truthfully, I have much more emotion attached to my relationship with Nebraska. Uh, I hope every volleyball coach listens to what I'm about to say next. Um, February 10th through 12th, five games in Houston, Texas. February 16th to 19th, five games in Clearwater, Florida. February 24th to 26th, five games in Las Cruces, New Mexico. March 3rd, March 5th, five games in Tucson, Arizona. That's crazy. That I don't, I don't, other than baseball, I don't know how, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how the coaches do it. I don't know how the players do it. Uh, you've got a, a wonderful second baseman who's a freshman. And to think that she would come into the University of Nebraska, play 20 games in four weeks with 10 flights in 
four different cities that are uh, a significant distance away from home. Plus, you may not have had the opportunity to even practice outside, and you're playing against teams that are top 10 teams that are uh, uh, have been able to practice outside. I, 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 uh, how, do, how do you do that? There is so much to unpack there. Uh, first of all, the not practicing outside is real. I've often said there are many sports that just have no context to what the uh, bat and ball sports have to deal with in a northern climate when they first start to play outside. And what we have to, we have to normalize the fact that you're practicing on field turf, dirt may be faster. You just saw that in Clearwater. If anybody watched this, the dirt was faster. And so it snuck up on us a little bit and we had to get used to playing in cleats versus turf shoes. I mean, we had to get used to a sun in a sky versus lights in the ceiling. So there's just so many things that, or even the wind, the factor of the wind holding a ball up or taking it out. So there's, there's just so many factors that you just have to normalize. Like we'll get used to it. There may be a learning curve here. You've done it before. Uh, and, and just it's, it's part of what it is. The same with the travel. Uh, the preparation, you're absolutely right. Trying to prepare student athletes as they're also going to school for, in this case, it's not necessarily 20 opponents because there's some schools that will play twice, like in Oklahoma State or Lamar or somebody like that. But let's say upward of 15 opponents. Well, so for instance, coming out of Clearwater and we play five top 25 opponents and four of those are top eight opponents. We're literally, as a coaching staff, once one game's over, we're starting into the the sophisticated part of our scout for the next one. So I literally need to sleep on Mondays because I'm not sleeping on the weekends trying to get that scout done. Well, I can't imagine doing that. In volleyball, we have uh, Huddle has a, a branch called Volley Metrics, and you can see an outside hitter every attack she's made during the season. I'm sure you have something similar in softball where you can watch um, somebody on New Mexico every at bat. Yeah, and that absolutely. takes that takes time. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. There, there's data out there to consume, but you're absolutely right. Every coach and every team decides what metrics, what analytics they want to look at, and what are meaningful to them. However, to consume that, it takes time, and then to make it how you present it to your team for your scout also takes time. Yeah. So why hasn't softball and baseball, why haven't they started a month later uh, so that you wouldn't have to go on the road four weeks in a row? I mean, is it because there haven't been key athletic directors who've supported it, who've pushed it? Harry? Okay, I'm going to date myself. I first wrote an article about this, you know, for print media in 1997. And I had all the pros and the cons and tried to attack everything. We've talked about at our convention almost every year in Ignazium. And it has just never gained a lot of traction for a lot of reasons. Some of the power softball conferences are in warm weather climates, it would be a disadvantage for them. They talk about the financial burden it would be once school's out to keep student athletes on campus. I always countered with our fall sports, we bring them back before school starts, isn't it an even balance? I think sometimes budgets are a little more stressed in athletic departments at the end of the year than they are at the first of the year, and people don't realize that, but that is real. Um, I will tell you, when we get a Warm weather day. We talk about at Nebraska, we talk about the support that we get from our fans. Well, it's all with a roof over your head. And we're even getting great support when the weather is at least uh, doable, you know, 40 degrees or more. Uh, we're playing to sell out crowds often in every Big Ten city last year that we played in, Terry. If the weather was good, we played to a sold out crowd. And that is so advantageous for our sport. But Let's go to the other side. I remember one year we were playing at a tournament at Arizona State. I looked at their schedule. Of the 56 games on their schedule, 40 of them were home games. Imagine. Imagine the advantage. Why would they want to let go of that? So 
Well, well, I'll tell you why they would want to let go of that. I, I remember um, I, we had a meeting of the big eight volleyball coaches and I said, bring your budgets. And I brought my budget and opened it up because it was, it was in, it was in my interest for those teams to be good. It was in, in the interest of the game. And you would hope that there are people in the Southeast conference or the uh, PAC 12 conference or uh, uh, conferences that are in warm weather conferences that have a, a Whataburger somewhere near the university um, to want to grow the game, not to just keep um, a situational advantage. I, I don't see how the sport can be prominent if you're not creating a, a, a playing field where everybody has the opportunity to, to be successful. Well, be that as it may, you have been successful. Uh, last year, your team won the, the uh, Big Ten tournament. Uh, you advanced in NCAA play. It was, a, it was a, a pretty special season. I had the opportunity to see some special seasons at Nebraska. The first one, I believe, was in 98. Uh, uh, Is that right? Uh, with, with Allie Viola. Mm -hmm. uh, I think she had a slugging percentage of 800. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, that team uh, went to the World Series. I remember Jenny Voss was the pitcher. And uh, we see she has something in common with the, with the uh, current basketball player at Nebraska, um, the, uh, who has a Japanese background in that. At the end of the, at the, end of the game, you wonder how she did it. Uh, is, is that accurate? I mean, yes. she yes. She, she won 40 games for you. Yeah. And uh, if you had to just put something next to her name, it would have been Jenny Voss, winner. And and this uh, same thing's happening with uh, this basketball player who's who's brought life into the Nebraska basketball program. Talk a little bit about, about that team, that 98 team. Well, let me talk about Jenny Voss. Uh, when in the recruiting process, I remember so distinctly, I was on the phone with her one day and I can't even remember the question that I asked her. And she just said so matter of factly, Terry, if the game's on the line, I want the ball in my hand. So it speaks to your point, Jenny Voss, winner. So she didn't view it as, oh my God. I mean, she, she just came up with that. The game's on the line, I want the ball in my hand. And to me, when you see greatness come out of people, they have just some of that in them. Like they're yeah, not, that, they're not that, worried about the outcome. They're not that, afraid of it. No. And it's not, it's not swagger either. I know swagger's my least favorite term in sport it comes from the word swag stick. And, you know, it means that we, it needs, it, it kind of has become marketing yourself while you're in the game, yes. you know, drawing, drawing attention to yourself. Yes, but l like you, I I've always valued uh, humility. Yes, a combination of humility yes. and confidence, and and she certainly has that. I think your program has always had that a respect for the game, a respect for opponents. Um, we cannot reach our full potential unless we're playing a great opponent, a and. Uh, yeah, she certainly had that. Then uh, probably the my favorite team to watch was um, in 02 with um, Peaches James uh, from Omaha was a, a pitcher, but you had Trimboli and Buckholtz and Burgess and uh, OG. Uh, it was a, a lineup where any person on a different day could carry the team offensively. I went to the College World Series in Oklahoma City, and that's where I saw Frito Pie. And I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but talk a little bit about that team. That, that was a pretty special, special year. It was, it, you know, all, all of them are special. But uh, that year, the interesting thing I think that's important to know about Peaches is Peaches had so much humility that it also crept over into doubt that she was good enough. 
And she was such an, an amazing athlete, but she doubted. And so we worked a lot on the doubt, but her teammates understanding what she meant to the success of our team, they had they were intuitive and they were thoughtful and they were reflective in how they approached her. And they literally provided her with courage. And wow. Peach's greatest motivation in the sport was to please her teammates. So we had this unbelievable um, relationship between them providing her with courage and in so doing, connecting with her and creating that love and that it brought out the best in Peach because she didn't want to let him down and she could then embrace her own talent because she was giving it to her teammates. It was a really interesting um, journey in that whole thing. And that that's almost worthy of a book in and of itself. And to hear even Peaches talk about it now, Terry, she's so eloquent in speaking about it. But um, it's it's a pretty amazing story, I think. Well, I remember you saying that she was hesitant to pitch inside mm -hmm. uh, because she was afraid that she might hit somebody. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't, it, it's pretty hard to be a dominant pitcher if you aren't willing to do that, maybe move somebody off the plate a little bit. Is that accurate? That's, that's so accurate. But her reason, you have to know her motivation. Her reason is she didn't want to hurt anybody. Right. And that's a whole different reason than you're afraid you're going to get hit. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was, that was wonderful. That, the, the other, I, I would make this observation too. If you had to say in the last 50 years that there was a golden age of Nebraska athletics, it, it may have occurred sometime, but in the early 90s through the uh, early 2000s. So you had softball, baseball going to the College World Series, Nebraska uh, going to uh, Final Fours and volleyball track competing for national championships, football winning national championships. Why? What, what was happening? What, what created that culture was, in your mind, what, what happened then? That's a great question. And I think um, a, a lot of people have tried to talk about it. And one of the things that I've, I, am conflicted by is when people try to talk about it almost in reverse, like we don't have that now. But, but why I think we had that then is we weren't comparing it to anything else. We were just being in the now. And I think that was the first thing. And then our, our student athletes are always among each other and success breeds success. I think that we cannot overstate how much the influence on the people around us, not just within our program, but around us and that surround us are impactful. So if volleyball is being successful, I, I, I think volleyball at Nebraska in some regards has completely been masterful in how they've been able to endure a level and standard of success when the other sports haven't been as successful. I believe that as one sport gets more successful, it feeds and bleeds into another. And so I think there's synergy in that. I think that happens at, at the administrative level. I think it happens at the coaching level that we as coaches are sharing kind of our nuggets of wisdom. And then I think I know it most certainly happens at the student athlete level. So what will it take to have it happen again? And notice I didn't say to get back there. I'm, that's tired. That's old. We need to be in the now. So I think what it's going to take to be there is, first of all, everybody knowing what the formula is within their own program. But we we share amongst each other. And, we, you know, we have this social media platform. And like one of the things that I try to do, I, our wrestling team, for instance, right now, they're, they're having a good run. Fred's team is that there's something, there's a feeling, right? And so every time I can, you know, I'm reaching out to those coaches and because it, it all matters. Everything matters and we cannot reduce what matters. And I don't know if I know exactly why that was then, but I think that we were just all committed to doing our part and doing our best. And we didn't get caught up in the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and maybe location matters in that 
the campus was tighter then. Um, you know, um, coaches are spread out all over campus. And I know I've heard athletic administrators say, I, I really would like our coaches in the, um, in the same building so that they interact with each other. I think you've worked hard to do that through the years. You've had very good relationships with the baseball coaches. I think you've gone out of your, out of your way. I understand that the softball staff is interacting with the, the women's basketball staff. T talk about that and, and how that impacts you. Well, let me go back to day one. And this is, you're just going to have to take this because it started in the Coliseum. And the the two biggest professional mentors of my life have been you and Barb Hibner for very different reasons. And what I understood about you that was really helpful is where you needed your mind space during season. So if, if you think about most of our conversations, you probably don't even know this, Terry, they weren't in the fall. They were after your season was over. But as soon as your season was over and in the summer when I can grab you, there are so many things that I gleaned from you. And it, it was while you were coaching, but then also when you were there as a coach advocate, which was a really tremendous role. Um, so I think that proximity, you and I would have never developed that relationship without the proximity. So if we're going to if we're going to develop those relationships with other coaches, with our schedules being as chaotic as they are, there has to be real intention. And there's only a certain amount of time in a day. So I don't know that you could do it with five different sport programs, but, you know, Amy Williams and I have formed a real great connection and we give each other time. And I think it's really valuable. And with baseball, there's proximity there. So I've been able to have great relationships with Mike Anderson, with Darren Erstad, and now with Will Bolt and really value those things. Because here's the thing, I'm going to go back to what you taught me. You've taught me so many things. You told me, and you're, you probably don't even remember half the stuff you told me that sticks with me. You told me that the life of a head coach, as a young head coach, you said, it's lonely. And so you're going to need people that understand what you're feeling when times get dark, when you're struggling. And so it's important that we have another head coach in our life that can relate, that can help pull us out of times when we're stuck, that can, and you did that for me. I remember calling you when we were in the Big 12 tournament and we had just lost to Oklahoma, Terry. And we ended up winning that tournament. And by the end of it, I was walking on a walk and you're talking to me. You had me completely convinced that we should have lost that game because it prepared us to win the next day. And you were right. You were right. We beat Oklahoma the next day. And but you had my mind what you were able to do for me because you understand coaching as a head coach is you were able to completely shift my mind. So then I could shift the mind of our collective team. And we went into that game with a completely different mindset. And that's what happens when we have those kind of relationships with people that n understand what we do. It doesn't matter the sport it does not matter the sport. Yeah. Well, th uh, th thank you for sharing that. I, I, I remember talking to you. I, uh, the part I remembered was <laughs> you, you had, uh, Lee Sur had been a, sh a shortstop and, uh, she was struggling there a little bit because there was, there was significant time when the ball was hit and when it would reach her. And so I suggested moving her to third base where things were faster. And then she had some difficulty, um, throwing the ball when when somebody would bunt the ball. And uh, I, I think the suggestion, I, I remembered uh, going to a, um, a carnival and you could win the prize if you could bet how fast you could throw the ball. And so I thought, well, I'll just guide the ball, a uh, baseball at 40 miles an hour, and then I'll throw the next one at 40 and win the prize. Of course, I didn't win it. I'd be three or four miles off. And then I just decided, what if each time I throw it as hard as I can so that I establish a, <laughs> a norm? <laughs> and so my suggestion on Lee was to just, Oklahoma's going to bunt, get in there, pick it up, and throw it as hard as you can to first base. And, and fortunately, uh, fortunately, she did it. 
you're right about coaching be a lonely uh, profession, particularly the head coach. Assistant coaches sometimes sleep well. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't think that uh, Lori Sippel always sleeps well because when you have played in a program and when you've been there so long, you take on a different emotional uh, relationship to the program. But uh, you know, I've I've been an assistant coach on national teams and things like that, and it, it is it's. It's a lighter, uh, a lighter feeling. Um, I also have the feeling that uh, it's lonely because we appreciate fans, what they do for us. There's, there's nothing like the basketball game the other day. I don't think Nebraska wins at the men's basketball game if the fans hadn't responded the way they responded. Uh, Fred Hoiberg's son steals the ball and the fans are going crazy and they upset a Maryland team that had possibly significantly more talent. So we appreciate that. But fans don't really understand what you do from the inside. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, in the same way that, um, you know, I'm a fan of airplane pilots, <laughs> particularly when they land. <laughs> but I can't imagine uh, I can't imagine having any insight into their training, their preparation, or you know when things are difficult, uh, what might what might be going through their mind. And I I guess I'm I would be an advocate for every university having someone on the staff that assumes that role. A, a um, a coach's coach, somebody that they, they can go into. I remember when, when I had that role at Nebraska, Bill Byrne asked me when uh, a, a golf coach retired, if for one season, I would be willing to do that. I said, I can't do that. I just can't do that. I can't be in that role and listen to coaches. And then he asked me if I, if I could have the track team report to me. And I said, I can't do that. I can't be the administrator and also listen with an open mind to, to the coach. My sense is, and you may not feel this, my sense is that to some degree, you're a, you're a mentor. You are a mentor to the softball world that you've, you've kind of assumed a role. I don't know if you've assumed it, but you, you have a patience and humility that speaks to other softball coaches. Well, that brings me to my second greatest professional mentor, Barbara Hibner. She has so many things that she said to me as well. And um, she always talked about, you know, what legacy are you leaving and mentoring is right up there. Uh, and she talked about it being a deed of servant leadership. So I do, I, I don't think about the title of being a mentor but I do think about helping others. And actually since um, 2019, it has expanded beyond the borders of the softball world. Um, I've been able to be uh, an ear and a listener for coaches in other sports that have gone through hard times. I've, it's been really a blessing for me to be able to feel like I got a, I got a text from a lacrosse coach that's off to a great start um, this year. And she said to me, I wouldn't be here without you. And, you know, as a human being, that just is so meaningful to think you've helped somebody along their way, especially when they're at a place when they don't know how, how they're going to dig out of it. And to not only dig out of it, but to come back and have joy and peace and energy and purpose and passion and all those things that ignite that coach. And, you know, it's just wonderful. And that those student athletes are getting to be a part of all of that with her. So mentoring, I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter the age. Um, uh, Terry, one of my greatest joys is when yesterday, yesterday when we played Arkansas, to have the Arkansas coaches walk by and say, hey, you want to go on a walk with us? You're the only staff we'd ask to go with us. And, you know, and then after the game, the Arkansas coach says to me, I would love for you to be the eyes of our team and I'll share anything about your team. And just 
that trust, right? And here we are competitors against one another, but I think that speaks to much more beyond. And, and I'll go back to Hibner. Another thing she said to me, I was having a pity party one day. We'd lost a couple games in a row and I walked in her office. You can visualize it because you walked in her office several times. And I said something and she just looked at me like only Barb Hibner could look at you. See, you're smiling because you know. And she said, now Rhonda Rebel, let's jump to your funeral. I'm like, wow, Hibner. <laughs> she goes, what do you want people saying about you at your funeral. Do you want them to say, oh, here lies a good coach or here lies an outstanding human being? And I didn't have anything to say. I tr- Terry, I turned around and walked out and you know exactly what I'm talking about. I had nothing to say. She made her point. Wow. That, that's, um, that's impressive. Um, that threw me for a loop. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know that that's what she was going <laughs> She didn't say the turd in the punch bowl thing. No, but but you but but you know Hibner. I mean, no. she cut to the chase, right? No, no, she was. Yeah, she did. She was what? She was wonderful, and mm-hmm. and I think um, both of us worked hard at nurturing that relationship. Yes. And I think uh, we gained courage from it. She gained courage to fight some um, some tough tough battles. Uh, I know that you really value humility. I think going back to that time when things were really going well, it it helped to have a Coach Osborne certainly valued humility. I mean, he won three national championships in a span of five or six years there. But um, he he would take time to talk with the custodian when he was leaving the building. Um, you know, he, he really had a genuine um, uh, humility, uh, sense of humility about him. He was a brilliant, he is a brilliant football mind, but I think that in some ways gave permission to coaches that that's, that's maybe a behavior we need to look at, we need to consider. Humility? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I learned a lot from Coach, and most of it was from at arm's length, you know, reading reading his quotes, uh, watching his interviews. And he, he always, I mean, he always started every press conference, it seemed like, with the same thing. We're playing a really good opponent this week. You know, if we don't play well, we're, you know. <laughs> and, and so he just had equal respect for the opponent, no matter what their stats look like, no matter what. And you're smiling again because you know him. And then the on the flip side, he always would say, you know, in the media, kind of to your point, we certainly appreciate the fans, but in the media, they're never as bad as they say you are, and it's never as good as they say you are. And so I think his point there that I took all those years, especially as a young coach, was to just stay even. So if you're doing the same to prep every single time, you're playing the best opponent you've ever played. It's about you winning your, whatever his game was, the turnover game, the field possession game, whatever it might be. And then you're not getting caught up in the outside noise when they're saying the great things or when they're not saying such the great things that you're really staying anchored to what causes you to be successful in the first place. And I think those come back to your core values, really, really come back to your core values. I, I want to talk a little bit about the game itself, softball itself. I, I, you know, I said to you earlier that it's, to me, it's kind of a reverse snow globe. Like if you get a snow globe and turn it upside down, everything is slower. Those little flakes fall down, but softball, everything speeds up there. You know, you, you cannot hesitate. Uh, you can't bobble a ball and throw the base runner out. Does that put more? Is there more pressure on soft uh, on softball players because of that? You just—it's such a game where there's a razor thin edge on whether or not um, you can make the play. I think it's the only life we know. But when I talk to baseball coaches or people that play baseball or are consumers of baseball. They will say, man, you just like even on a 
drop third strike, right? Or third strike in the dirt. The catcher in baseball has time to kind of double pump their glove, clear and toss it to first. The catcher in softball might have to make a bang, bang play. And so to your point, yes, the game's very quick. I don't know that it's necessarily considered extra pressure because it is what we know. But I think what we understand is the standard for excellence, uh, the margin of success and failure is very thin. What does being mentally tough in softball mean? Well, I really think, Terry, it's honestly being ridiculously consistent in your behaviors and your actions for your skill set. And, and let me tell you what I mean by that. Let's just talk about a great hitter in our game, fails 70% of the time. So I can't imagine, like even in basketball, if you're a 45% shooter or a 50% shooter, you're still only failing 50 to 55%. Now, I mean, 70% failure, like an over two to one failure rate to success rate, You've got to have a quick switch, a short memory, and your bounce back has got to be literally pitch to pitch. And there's an average of 10 to 12 seconds per pitch. And just as we talked about as a team coming out of the weekend that we came out of, probably the biggest lesson I asked the team, each player, what did you learn from playing four top eight opponents? And they said, if we do not stay pitch to pitch mentally, it gets exposed. So the mental toughness or the mindset has to be, how do I reset every 10 seconds with clarity of mind? And I'm right here in the now. And I would think there's some similarities to that between um, volleyball and softball. I mean, the play ends, you have another play, you know, like with, as opposed to like a soccer or basketball where it's constant transition sport. I would think that it's in that moment where you're resetting. It's like, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm back to here. I'm right here right now. Do, do some players have a trigger, uh, a key for that, you know, where maybe they snap their finger or hit their hip or? There's lots of different things. Some use a focal point. Some use a mantra. Some have a physical. You know, if they're a tactile person, they might pick up dirt and throw it down. A pitcher may pick up a rosin, throw it down. It may be how she swipes the plate as a you know, pitcher. There's a lot of different things. Hitters, you see all sorts of routines coming out of hitters in between pitches that help to get them back to right now. Mm-hmm. When in volleyball, we create situations in practice that you, you know you you can't exactly recreate the pressure of a game, mm-hmm. but we try to. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's you, you're going to have to perform at a very high level to succeed, and if if you don't we do it again. And there's maybe even more pressure. Do you, do you do that in softball? How do you create pressure in practice? Yes, absolutely. And, and you're right. You can't create the exact pressure, but you certainly can try. So like offensively, let's say we're, uh, we're facing a pitcher that throws particularly hard. It's going to be important in practice. And a lot of this comes via machine or live live pitching that we actually move the pitcher up. So you're actually overtraining that speed. So if let's say a pitcher throws 70, we might be overtraining to 75, 76, 77 miles an hour. So then when we see 70, it's a little more normalized. Um, And if we're playing a team that has great speed on defense, you know, we'll pull out the stopwatch, even though we don't play a stopwatch game and we've got to make plays and under a certain amount of time. And if we don't, and if you We'll bob- if we bobble, we won't make it. So we've got to learn to control our cadence and our rhythm without rushing, you know, be quick without rushing uh, with a stopwatch going. And and we do, we do a drill that, you know, they see start overs on the practice. It's you've got to perform it 10 times in a row perfectly or we start over. And we try to make those really high pressure situations that we're doing that with and a very small margin of error. And you're getting into the art of coaching here. We have two responsibilities. We have the responsibility to train people to perform in that situation, but we also have the opportunity or we'd like to create a kind of a base of confidence and competence. And so we have to kind of know where somebody's at yeah. in that situation. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that gets into a lot of things. I always felt that the most important, I needed to know two things about a player before I could coach her. 
I needed to know what she was motivated by. You know what? what uh, and then the second thing I needed to know was how she learned. That different people learn in different ways, and so it, it might mean had two great setters at one time, uh, Kathy Noth and Mary Bicey. One was left brain and one was right brain. So one, I'd go into the huddle and draw something out on a piece of paper, and the other one I would just say, tell her what to do in the in the third rotation. And it isn't a matter of of they were both intelligent, but they saw the they saw the world differently. They processed um, information differently. Um, Billy Andrews, you know, she she leads off for you. I, I think she has. She already has five home runs, four of them that let off games. I, um, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you've played, you've played ten games, and in four of them, she's let off with a home run. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I'm pitching to her if um, if we're if we're beginning a game, but um, I'm guessing that 15, 20 years ago. Um, she might might be batting cleanup or third instead of first. Um, I remember when Bill James came out with sabermetrics uh, about baseball, and I I read the book and devoured it, and said, "How does this apply to to, to volleyball?" Uh, for for those for those people that are maybe our baseball fans or softball fans, why why is uh, Billy? Um, leading off instead of maybe batting third or fourth in the lineup. Mm -hmm. Well, you're right. Uh, the game has changed a little bit. 15 years ago, the slapper was the big thing. And I remember you and I talked about it because Texas had some feisty slappers at the top of their lineup that they just put the ball in play and beat it out half the time. And then you, then you waited. Tell people for, what a sla slapper was. Yeah, they yeah. actually cross-stepped. Yeah, they did. They so they're from the left hand side of the box, and people that don't understand the game, they're like, "Why are they running through the box and not just standing there and hitting?" But running through the box, they have to stay in the box. But when they make contact, they're already in motion, and they're the ones that are really great at it are at the front of the box, so they're actually three feet closer to first base. So now they have a fifty-seven foot run versus a sixty-foot run, and they're already in motion. So they've overcome inertia. So you get your elite slappers that are getting down the line, 2.6, 2.7 seconds. You talk about having to be perfect in the play. You've got to be perfect. And then you get dirt, like an Arizona dirt that's baked, and they get a little hop on it, and they train to that, and they recruit to that. It's nearly impossible because sometimes the ball doesn't even come out of the sky before you have a chance to make a play. So that game was really big until, guess what? The defense adjusted. So, you know, just how the games evolved. And how did the defense adjust? Well, they, they started taking away. They started just really sucking in and taking away that, that tap and go kind of stuff. And then the slappers, you talk about becoming three tool slappers that they can drag bunt, slap, and hit for power off their slap. You still have some of those in the game, but... You know, like the great Arizona teams during that time period, Terry, they might have had three or four. They might have had the one hole, their two hole, and their nine, maybe their eight and nine hole that were all doing that. And then they had their big Billy Andrews kind of hitters in the other spots. So now what you'll see in the game, you see, still will see that some, but with a Billy Andrews who's really, she's our fat, she's our best base stealer. She's got, leads our team in walks. And to your point, as she's managed her strike zone, you know, I told her, I said, your biggest goal this year is to manage your strike zone and not get yourself out because if they want to walk you, let's turn it into a double because you're stealing. And right now we're nursing a little bit of a hamstring injury. So we haven't really stolen her, but that will be featured later in her game when they stop pitching to her. So that's kind of like in her hip pocket. And then the set, the third reason, who gets up more than your leadoff hitter in the season? So let's say that produces, I don't know, 25 more at-bats. Well, I'll take 25 more at-bats out of Billy Andrews any day. Right, right. The, the, and the, the runner on first base can't leave the the base until, is it the, 
the, the ball crosses or the plate or leaves the pitcher's hand? Leaves the pitcher's hand. Leaves the pitcher's hand. And so what is her, what's her percentage of stealing a base? Oh, um, gosh. Well, we, we always aim to have it over 85%. Um, and I think she's higher than that. I, I don't know. Like, I, we haven't stolen her this year because of that little injury. But last year, I feel like she was like 92% success rate. Right. Um, when, when you're recruiting, and let's say that you know you're recruiting a person with high character and good mindset, good mental skills, et cetera, uh, physically, what are you looking for? What can you teach and what can't you teach? Um, you know, for example, in passing a volleyball, it's a lot of it's based on vision and even bone structure in the arms. I, I can't teach somebody to track if they don't have the ability to track a ball. What, you know, can you teach bat speed? So really great question. So to your point about in volleyball, the tracking, you know, Diane Miller, who's our hitting coach says, Rhonda, I don't care how far they can hit the ball. If they swing and miss too much in club ball, it won't translate because of what you're talking about, either whether it's hand-eye coordination, whether it's bat path or whether it's vision. It's one of those three things that you can't. So one of the things that you've got to look at physically is, is how good is their hand-eye coordination for putting the barrel to the ball, okay? Then depending on, you know, every year, some, some years you might be more interested in somebody with gap-to-gap power versus somebody with long ball power. But in both of those things, you can't, you can't teach, you know, this, what I said, if people can't make contact, they're not going to make contact in college. Um, the bat speed is real. So, you know, you have a baseline metric. If your bat speed in high school and club ball isn't at least 70 miles an hour, you're probably not going to be really successful in college. So you have some metrics there where Data has come in and has been helpful to us. The overhand throw, if it's not in the 60s, it's hard to translate unless you're playing first base or a, a, a position that doesn't require a lot of arm strength because everything translates. Like like our Caitlin Neal, for instance, her overhand throw is 72 miles an hour, which is exceptional. Uh, and her bat speed is really good too. So sometimes, you know, that translates offense to defense as well. What's the highest bat speed you've seen for a Nebraska player? Uh, Tristan, since we've been measuring bat speed, it's been Tristan Edwards at 85. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and she and her sister Taylor were on that 2013 team that went to the College World Series. You told me a story about recruiting them. They were from California. Uh, I'm sure every college coach knew about them. But you told me about the time that you took when you would make a phone call to talk talk to them. Can you share a little bit of that? Yes. Um, twins, pitcher, catcher, both hitters. And I would spend, I knew it was going to be a long shot and pulling them out of Pac-12 territory because they were being recruited by many of the Pac-12 schools. It ended up coming down between Washington and Nebraska. I think that UCLA would have had a leg up, but they were recruiting one of the twins harder than the other. And to your point, Terry, I remember this. You talk about how you coach a player knowing their motive. You always told me as a recruiter, you've got to know what their hook is. And that's the word you use. You got to know their hook. And you helped me actually recruit them with that piece of information a long time ago. And so I knew that their hook was that they were going to play together and that that was the most important thing, that they were going to do this thing together. And so every time I called, I called to talk to both of them one at a time. And it was every Wednesday and every talk, even though we'd ask, I'd maybe ask the same questions all over again, I gave each of them like they were singles. And so every conversation was 30 to 45 minutes. And then they'd pass the phone and it was 30 to 45 minutes all over again, every Wednesday night for 18 months. Wow. <laughs> and there were no guarantees. There were no guarantees. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, that's impressive. And uh, 
Tatum was the pitcher and was a great pitcher. Yeah. And her sister uh, was the catcher. I, I believe Tatum probably hit more, the pitcher actually hit more home runs. Is that right? Or Actually, actually Taylor did. Taylor, Taylor did. did. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I remember when you got them and it was uh, uh, pretty, pretty exciting. Have you ever, have you ever, has your team, Bill Byrne helped me with this in the early 90s. You know, I, I think, I think for a good part of my career, I was motivated by not losing, which is different than motivated by, by winning. And um, I remember he, he turned to me one day, we were walking, said, when are you going to win a national championship? And um, two thoughts, two feelings went through me at the same time. The, the positive one was, boy, that's great. You know, it's, 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 it's wonderful to have an athletic director that um, feels that's a possibility and, and is kind of maybe encouraging you to do that. The other is, wow, that's interesting, you know, um, because there were, there were times when I could have red shirted, say, Stephanie Thader and Eileen Shannon and put them together on a team coming up and really had a good chance of winning a national championship. But I was too stubborn. I didn't want to lose a conference championship. Um, but I don't think we win the national championship in 1995 had he not said that to me. H- have you ever gone into a season where the team has said to you, our goal is to win the national championship this year. I wouldn't say I've had that in my career yet. I've had um, teams say our goal is to get to the World Series. And it's only been when a team has felt that way that we have, which I think is another, it's a whole nother podcast, right? Um, but I want to I want to go back to uh, Bill Byrne because he made a similar statement to me uh, on a lesser scale, but I think it speaks to the power of leaders. You know, whether it's an administrator to a coach or a coach to a player, he said to me, "We had won the Big Twelve championship, and I delivered it to his office, and he said, now I just want to make sure you have everything you need because we expect a few more of these.'" <laughs> and it, and Terry, it hit me the same way because I think I think it's probably normal. I guess I haven't asked every coach this, but is our do we have a greater fear of not losing or a greater desire to win, right? And when he said that, it hit me both the exact same ways that you just described. And uh, so, but on the flip side, we went on to have a really good run. And I remember the day that he it was announced that he was going to Texas A and M. It felt like a gut punch because I felt like he, as a leader, even though I didn't talk to him a lot, it was empowering. His his attitude toward us at our sports was empowering to me. Well, I, I do understand. I, I was there when he announced that, and it was a punch in the gut. Uh, and I left soon. I chose to leave soon afterwards. I was the coach advocate. I was I I enjoyed the role. Um, because we had monthly meetings and coaching issues. And uh, I got to know, um, I went to all practices. I went to uh, developed uh, intimate relationships with coaches. But when I sensed the openness that Bill created, uh, when he went into the cafeteria or the training table where we all ate lunch, he was as apt to sit with Ronda Ravel, more apt to sit with Ronda Ravel than, say, the defensive coordinator in football. It, you know, or he would sit with the men's golf coach or, you know, he, he was genuinely interested in uh, the people that he was working with. And, and it was um, a relationship business, um, which takes us into today. Every coach I've talked with, in any sport has told me the last three years have been the most difficult years to coach. But I'm guessing if you're running a restaurant, you'd say the same thing, you know, that it has been difficult for for everybody. 
we've got a couple other things that have entered into coaching with the um, oh the, the portal and and uh, name image likeness that have, have changed it. But I sense now that relationships with um, what do we call it Generation Z um, are even more important that uh, it, you're not going to have much luck being a transactional coach today. Is, is that a fair statement? I, I think it's a fair statement. I'm going to agree, but I'm going to twist it a little bit. I, I think I can only speak for myself. Relationships have always been the most important, the most important piece of the why we coach. Right. Uh, However, what I think has changed or, or yeah, changed, Terry, is the how. So before, before, whenever, 15 years ago, let's just say, the when the relationship was developed was actually during practice or during competition or a conversation before or after practice about how to develop and grow our best competitive self. And that from that center grew out the relationship to the whole person. Now the relationship needs to grow from the whole person before you can get to that competitor. And so it feels really different. It's still the same endpoint that you're developing a relationship, but it has to, it's kind of like your reverse snow globe. And so it feels like it takes, well, it does, it takes more time. Because before you were kind of multitasking, doing that within practice or competition or those before or after locker room talks. And now it's you're going for coffee or you're meeting for lunch or whatever else you may be doing to develop that. And I think, you know, as I've reflected on that, it's like, you know, something's not sitting right with me because relationships have always been so important. That hasn't changed. And I, I think about when our alumni from 20 years ago return, we're not talking about games. We're talking about our relationship. And so I'm like, okay, why can't I put my finger on this? And that's what I've come up with. Yeah, I think that um, that's really well put. You know, I, I said to you before we went on today, I, I don't know that anybody could ask you a question that you haven't given some thought to. Um, that, that you you really take these things to heart. My, my last question for you is this. If Rhonda Ravel was introducing Rhonda Ravel to be the, um, the guest speaker in front of a group of people on leadership and team building, how would you introduce her if you couldn't say anything about softball, about winning or losing, or any of the awards that you've won, what would you say? How would you introduce Rhonda Ravel? I'm going to take you to a time that um, was a little bit of a difficult time to get through. And it was in 2019. And I said it to one of my biking friends on a bike trail outside of Lincoln, Nebraska, near Roca. And we were discussing, we were discussing how, you know, who you are, who we are as individuals. And I remember saying to her, I said, you know, when I was 12 years old until the time I stopped playing softball, I was Rhonda the pitcher. And then I started coaching right out of college and I was Rhonda the coach. And you know what? I really just want to be just Rhonda. And when I say I want to be just Rhonda, I want to be no matter what environment or whom I'm talking with, whether it's our janitor, or whether it's our athletic director, or whether it's a friend that calls me distressed, or whether it's on ESPN, I want them to be able to say, yep, that sounds like Rhonda. That's just Rhonda. What you see is what you get. Rhonda's real. Rhonda's authentic. And sometimes I feel like, you know, there have been times where I feel like I'm just trying to be real, that it almost seems corny or cheesy, but it's really how I feel. So at the end of the day, there are times when I'm getting ready to speak and people have these long bios and I say, can you just introduce me as just Rhonda? Kind of like the Johnny Carson show. Here's Rhonda. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, I, I think uh, mission accomplished 
Uh, hmm. you, you've been just Rhonda today, but you've also been the Rhonda that I've always, always known. So I, I want to thank you for joining us today. You've you've been um, just wonderful. I want to thank um, Dave Pulaski, our producer in Le Learfield, and uh, and finally I want to thank HumanX. And it's great to be on a team that uh, is interested in developing uh, uh, coaches. Uh, I'll look forward to watching uh, Nebraska softball as you head down to, uh, is it Oklahoma State? Is that where you're going next or to New we Mexico? New Mexico, but we play Oklahoma State again. So. Oklahoma State. Yeah. Thank you, Just Rhonda. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. Thank you for all you do for coaches. It's really wonderful. Thanks for listening to Inside the Coaching Mind with Coach Terry Pettit. Tune in next time as we welcome in another guest to talk leadership, coaching, and team building. Inside the Coaching Mind is presented by HumanX Ventures and in collaboration with Learfield.